what does it mean to be alone? For some of us, it is as simple as having no new notifications on our phone or watching Instagram stories from home as people go to bars. Sometimes being alone is being the only black person in a classroom or the only female manager for a company. Loneliness can remind us who we are or aren't as we sit in stillness with it and share a moment with the void. The Lodge was crafted in this sense of void film which takes the viewer straight into the depths of uncertainty and isolation. It's a film about a lot of things. Pain, trauma, grief, resentment. But above all else, it's a film about loneliness and the haunting truths which we all must accept at some point or another in our lives. Today in the community garden, I'll be taking a look at the 2019 film The Lodge in a fitting manner. What's going on, guys? So, uh, this is Nate from the Community Garden Podcast, and I am currently in Super Omega Quarantine. Um, my brother is a EMT and uh, firefighter, and he recently tested positive for the coronavirus. Um, I'm not totally sure if he actually has it or if it was a full positive or what, but I live in the same apartment as him. So... I'm going to be here for a while, and uh, I decided to try to record an episode um, while I was by myself, and I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. I decided to do a film, and I consulted my quarantine film list, which all has movies about like isolation or being alone, like I think it had Castaway and The Martian and... The Shining, Solaris, a bunch of different movies, and not all of them totally about um, isolation, but all sort of touching on it. And I just thought it would be interesting to watch some of them um, while I was quarantined up. So a movie I watched that I really decided to analyze was The Lodge, which came out in 2019. I think it had more of its wide commercial release in 2020. Um, I just streamed it at home. But... um, Overall, I thought it was a really good movie. Trying to fit with the normal structure of the show, I wanted. I even typed up my own icebreaker to sort of like ease into it before I really dove into talking about the movie. So I just wanted to say, um, the icebreaker for the episode is, what's your favorite cult? I really wanted to ask this question to the other guys, but since I'm by myself, I'll have to say, my pick for favorite cult is definitely Colonia Dignidad. It's not super well-known. It was a Chilean cult, but this is some interesting shit. If you are into cults, you should dive in. Um, it was set up by this guy named Paul Schaefer, not the pianist from David Letterman, but um, a guy who I believe was a former Nazi and or a uh, Nazi collaborator. And... They set up this crazy weird cult in Chile and it ended up kind of converting into a pseudo-military barracks and there were like um, runaway Nazis laundered through this cult and it's fascinating. I heavily recommend at least a uh, peruse of the Wikipedia page but the podcast Truanon actually has a multi-part series on it so that is also something worth checking out. Um... (laughs) But yeah, so I figured that I get that out of the way because there are cults are in this movie, so um, that's why I added that. But um, I'm just gonna dive in and do a plot overview and just kind of pepper in some comments, and then I'm gonna go into some analysis of the movie. I'm not totally sure how long this will end up being, but I wanted to give you guys a little something while 
um, Chris and Alex aren't able to meet with me and record. So here we go. Here's the synopsis. Laura Hall, separated from her husband, Richard, dies by suicide after he informs her that he plans to marry Grace Marshall, a woman he met while researching a book about an extremist Christian cult. Raised in the cult, Grace was the sole survivor of their mass suicide, led by her father. Laura's death devastates her and Richard's children, teenage Aiden and young Mia. Six months later, Richard announces that, we, uh, that they will be spending Christmas with Grace at their family's remote Massachusetts lodge to get to know each other. Aiden and Mia uncover Grace's past, including video footage of the cult showing the deceased followers draped in purple silk with duct tape across their mouths reading, Sin. At the lodge, the children act hostile towards Grace and refuse efforts to bond with her, even after Richard departs back to the city for a work obligation. Okay, so really quick, the dad in this movie is like the worst dad slash husband ever. He pretty much has like an affair <laughs> with this cult survivor, which drives his ex-wife to suicide, and then just six months later, like dumps his kids with this. Um, same or with this new woman um, at this lodge, and then he leaves around Christmas. Like, it's supposed to, I don't know. He's pretty awful. Um, but really what I want to say is the movie starts with a crazy bang. Um, if you haven't seen it already, this is going to be riddled with spoilers. But genuinely, if I were to ever give a trigger warning for something, it would be this movie because there is like a super sudden and graphic suicide by firearm in it. And it instantly, I was instantly in the movie, like sunk in, but man, it was fucking a lot. It was a lot. Um, but yeah, that, that's it for the beginning. Um, okay. After that, Grace's unease is compounded by the abundance of Catholic iconography in the cabin, which causes her to have nightmares about her father. In the morning, Grace awakens to discover that her belongings, including her clothes, psychiatric medication, and her pet dog, are all missing, all, as well as all of the food and Christmas decorations. The generator has gone out, leaving all of their cell phones dead. Grace suspects the children have pranked her, but finds her belongings missing as well. She notices the clocks have advanced to January 9th, Aiden tells Grace he dreamed the gas heater malfunctioned and they all suffocated and expresses fear that they may be in the afterlife. Dun, dun, dun. So, once this uh, line is said, like once the scene happens, the movie really picks up because there's already sort of this surreal air about how it is shown, but after this point, you really don't know what the fuck is going on. The film mostly follows Grace, but there are definitely scenes without her, and it's really hard to tell, um, as the viewer, who's the narrator, whose perspective you're really viewing this through, who's reliable, and once um, Aiden introduces, like, he tells her that he had a dream that they died, you really start to wonder what's going on. Over the next several days, Grace, succumbing to anxiety, medication withdrawals, hunger, and cold, begins sleepwalking and is tormented by disturbing visions and dreams, including the recurrent voice of her father sermonizing. She attempts to walk to the nearest town, discovering a cross-shaped cabin where she sees her father beckoning to her. She eventually travels in a circle, taking her, making her way back to the lodge. 
Buried in snow, she discovers a photo of Aiden and Mia in a memorial frame, and inside finds the children praying over a newspaper article detailing the deaths of all three of them from carbon monoxide poisoning on December 22nd. Aiden insists that they are in purgatory, and hangs himself in the attic as proof that they are dead, only to inexplicably survive. Grace suffers a nervous breakdown, which intensifies when she finds her dog frozen to death outside. She enters a catatonic state on the porch. Worried she might die of exposure, the children finally admit that they have been gaslighting her the entire time, have drugged her, hidden her possessions in a crawl space, and faked the hanging, and played recordings of her father's sermons via a wireless speaker. Holy shit. When this plot twist hit, I hated these children with every fiber of my being. This is maybe some of the most foul... This is one of the most foul things you can possibly do to a human being. Um, genuinely on par with uh, torture. Like, physical torture. This is just mental torture. Um, I was so shocked. Um, yeah, there's really not much else to say. I, that's For me, that's the moment when the film became really fascinating and I knew that there was really something to talk about um just the way that it intersected with psychology and um mental health and identity and all of these different things um it really really opened my eyes um to the depth of the film but here's the end with their phone with their own phones dead at last the children unsuccessfully attempt to start the generator and bring uh and bring Grace her medication, but find her convinced that they are in purgatory and must do penance to ascend to heaven. That night, the children witness Grace self-flagellating by burning herself on the hearth. They hide in the attic, but Grace confronts them in the morning, insisting they must sacrifice something for the Lord. Richard returns to discover an inconsolable Grace brandishing his pistol. In an attempt to prove her belief that they are in purgatory, she fires the gun at him, killing him. Aiden and Mia attempt to flee into the car, but gets stuck in the snow. Grace forces the children back into the lodge, where she seats them at the dinner table with her father, with their father's corpse, and sings "Nearer God to Thee." She asphyxiates duct tape, or fixes duct tape, reading "Sin" to each of their mouths, before contemplating the gun in the final shot. So yeah, the final shot of the film is like them all sitting at this table, duct tape over their mouths, and there's a revolver. <laughs> okay, where to start? First of all, man. Like, you know, there's this sort of new trend with horror films where they're really less horror films and just, like, really, really sad, <laughs> like, scary dramas. I don't really... Like, um, Midsummer, Hereditary, uh, a lot of A24 movies. Um, but, man, this one is right in there. And it, is, it was really powerful. Um, I would say that, to me... I finished watching it, and the juices instantly started flowing. And I knew that it would be a good one to talk about and record an episode by myself about. Um, just because there's so much to psychoanalyze, and that's sort of like my area of interest and study. So it felt like I would be really comfortable um, dissecting the movie. Uh, I've got like a rough outline of how I kind of want to go through this. It's not the normal format, because I don't have anyone to ask questions so I just sort of going to flow through some topics and just sort of um, muse over my ideas of the movie. Um, 
first, um, uh, when I was watching the movie, especially when they introduced the idea that they may be in purgatory, the film started to really remind me a lot of No Exit by Jean-Paul Sartre, who uh, is an existentialist philosopher, but this piece in particular is a play he wrote. He wrote a series of plays. A couple of them were original works, and the others are adaptations of like Greek plays. But No Exit is a play about three people in hell. And the three of them are in this room, and they don't know each other, and they don't know why they're there, but they do know that they are dead, and they do know they're in hell. And they keep waiting for hell to come. They keep waiting for the fire. They keep waiting for the devils. They keep waiting for all of the cliche things you expect to have happen in hell. But they slowly realize that hell is going to just be spending eternity in a room with two other insufferable strangers. And as the play starts to um, reach a simmer and you really start getting a feel for where it's going, um, there's a very iconic moment where one of the characters is more vain and concerned with her looks and she tries fixing her makeup and she realizes that there's no mirror and another character suggests that oh they can just be each other's mirrors you know i'll, I'll look at you and it'll describe your face to you but then she immediately starts fucking with the girl starts telling her makeup is smudged when it's not starts saying she put on too much lipstick and things like that and ultimately the play is really informed by more of sartre's philosophy which is um based on this sort of um, condemnation at birth of reliance on others, or the other, like with a capital O in a psychoanalytic sense, and that you're born into a world because some other people decided to reproduce. You're born in a country that you don't choose. You speak a language, you learn a language that's not of your choice. All of these predetermined, essentially, factors contribute to who you are. Yet, you are an individual in your own volition with a conscious understanding of what is happening to you. And you're trapped in this sort of um, conflicting and jarring existence where... You are your own individual, but how you arose to become your own individual was entirely out of your control and dependent on the influence of others. So ultimately, No Exit paints it as this image of being damned in the way that you truly um, are bound by others. The quote, hell is other people, comes uh, from No Exit, which most people know that quote. That struggle with the other and reconciliation of your relationship with the other, in a lot of ways, is what defines how one becomes actualized. And in Sartre's vision of hell, it is all people who failed to overcome the fear of the other, and they are thus trapped in that state of fear, confronting it at all times. Now, I may have jumped ahead a little bit by talking about the actualization and the um, confrontation of the other, accepting the other. So I, I just kind of want to dive into that and sparse that more because I think 
a lot of what the Lodge gets at, to me, psychoanalytically, comes from that. So, the big device in the Lodge is this use of gaslighting. The way that, and if you, if you listen to our Twitter psychology episode, which is a demo episode, um, you know, Chris and I are very picky, and Alex, are very picky on when people use the term gaslighting. It's just a little pet peeve. But this, this, is, this is gaslighting, my friend. This is gaslighting. <laughs> like, you know, when your girlfriend lied to you that one time, that wasn't necessarily gaslighting. This is gaslighting. Grace's entire sense of reality is challenged by such a grand network of lies that she actually has to recontextualize herself and begin viewing her experience from a different lens. Um, which this film, it, it portrays visually very well. And I think it can be used as a good learning tool for some more sticky aspects of psychoanalysis and specifically a subject I'm interested in, which is intersubjectivity. Now, um, using gaslighting, using Grace in her interactions with Aiden and Mia as a jumping off point to talk about this, um, I would look at, I would begin by looking at it as uh, an example of Hegelian inner subjectivity. So, it's a lot, if you're not familiar with the material, but Hegel was a philosopher um, who is a part of the um, German idealist movement, I believe. I'm not a philosopher, so if I'm wrong about some of this stuff, please correct me, please message me. I'm trying to learn more about philosophy. But... One of the more famous aspects of his work is the dialectic, which I think I've mentioned in a couple of episodes. Um, but it's just the idea of you have a thesis. Because you have this idea, naturally, the, all of the contradictions of it will come to rise and an antithesis will form. And the two ideas in, uh, that now stand in opposition to each other will um, have to reconcile and resolve these internal contradictions and form a new synthesis. It sounds sort of abstract, but I think intersubjectivity actually explains it really well from a psychoanalytic lens, which is that you, you have yourself, you're a subject, and you have interactions with the other, anyone that is not you, anyone that is not your own operant conscious mind. So another person, for example. They tell you things about the world using like language and different symbolic orders to express their knowledge of reality. And you take that and you take that in and you inform your own understanding of the world with that information. And you do that to them and vice versa. In this exchange, you are the thesis and the other is the antithesis. And your understanding of the world is formed via synthesis. Um, not to get like too esoteric, but like I think that's like where existence essentially exists. More in the space between people rather than like inside one person's like conscious mind or body but that's that could be like a whole different episode but i think here is where you see the power of gaslighting and lying and manipulation because you're truly reliant on these other people on the other in order to form this psychic basis and understanding of the world that you traverse and in the lodge 
this order is completely betrayed by Aiden and Mia. Now, um, I think it's important to mention psychosis in here because there's a lot of different definitions of psychosis and understandings of psychosis, and there is a very clinical way to look at this film, that the gaslighting triggered this sort of trauma-induced or trauma-informed psychosis. Maybe not to get, like, too psychiatric, but probably, like, you know, PTSD with psychotic features or something like that. But after having this traumatic experience of being gaslit so strongly by the children, Grace clearly interprets and encodes a new sense of reality, a new form of operation, a new way of viewing the world. Now, some theorists argue that that's really all psychosis is, is people operating on a different formation of an understanding of the shared world. Rather, a disconnection from the shared world, shared experience that we have agreed upon collectively between subjects. I'm sorry if this is getting a little off the rails, but I, I, the rest will be a little bit more um, under control. But I think that there's kind of two ways to view Grace's experience in here. One would be the clinical sense of psychosis that, oh, because of the stress, because of this trauma that she's endured, um, being gaslit in this way has triggered her into um, psychosis and she truly is not mentally right, mentally well. And that even that's why even once they start telling her, she can't snap back into reality. I would argue that this is also a good model to explain alternate ways of viewing psychosis, maybe by theorists like Artie Lang, who are have a more anti-psychiatric approach and just say reality is just this shared consensus. And really, people dislike any deviations from this consensus. Typically, people who question the status quo, question what should or shouldn't be, um, are branded as outcasts by society. And on some levels, people will even use the same language that they use to describe people with mental illness to describe people who are revolutionary or maybe a part of countercultural movements. And I think this reflects that people have a more nuanced understanding of the way we socially construct reality than they might even let on or even consciously admit or you know consciously be aware of that they experience this and can sense this but getting to the point i would argue that um grace is victim to this as well that there's really an argument to be made that grace truly just recontextualized her understanding of the world based on the information that these uh people were giving her and you can only do that so often, so many times. And she truly believed them and agreed, yes, oh, we must truly be in purgatory. And that's why she was resistant to switching back. Because once you change your mind over something that large, going back would be so difficult. Think about times in your life where you've changed your mind after receiving new information just about an opinion. Now imagine you received information that literally altered the entire way you perceive reality and how you've contextualized yourself in the laws of nature and like um 
uh, laws of gravity. <laughs> any, any universal laws like that, you're now taking into question. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy um, for Grace, not just as a character who's tormented, but also just as, to me, what she represents as um, people in general who are considered psychotic or branded with any number of psychiatric disorders who might ultimately be trying to express something that exists much deeper in them, a turmoil that struggles to be expressed through the symbolic order of language and needs to be expressed more in emotional and metaphorical ways. And there are a lot of theorists who view schizophrenia this way. They don't really view it as being a medical disorder. Um, and I'm quite partial to it, although I'm still just in the undergrad portion of my program, so I don't understand all of this stuff super well. But I think it's something really interesting to look into. Um, but that's most of what I had to say about mental health or psychology. But I think there's also something interesting to touch with this film, which is its flirtation with cults. And I think it's important that Grace's character comes from a cult and not just any other traumatic past or event because it really says a lot about her identity and why I think she is so reliant on gaining information and contextualizing herself through knowledge obtained by the other. Why she is so easily swayed and manipulated by Aiden and Mia. And it's that, ultimately, I think that a lot of the time, people join cults or cult-like organizations or what they call um, mind control environments, I think is another term for them. But it really comes from people looking for a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a place where things make sense. Because I think that it's an incredibly human and normal thing to feel isolated and alienated and confused and really struggling to get a sense of what the world is like and where your place in the world is. I mean, we're, I was just talking about this, this subject, other relations, but th you know, this is a real thing and uh, that is applied to moving targets that, yeah, you can think about it just in a vacuum, but Every day you talk to people and it gives you a little bit of information about the world and that challenges what you may have already thought and vice versa. You might do that to someone else. And I think right now, especially, man, in 2020, not a lot of people have answers and a lot of people have questions. And I think that there's a massive allure to cults in the simplicity of just saying, oh yeah, we have all of the answers. We, we actually have all of the answers. And that is like waving a sweet drug in front of a lot of people. Just the idea that they could enter an environment where they feel safe and secure and understood. And I think that you see that reflected in Grace, in her desire to be welcomed by the children. She's very clearly hurt, just like them. She's also undergone this profound loss. Um... But I think it is, for her, um, it's more complicated because she knows that she's trying to replace their mom. 
But I also think that being an adult gives her a, an ability to have a more nuanced read of the situation. The kids, I mean, honestly, analyzing it, I don't have a whole lot to say about the kids. To me, yeah, the first thing that really came to mind was no exit, just sort of this cruelty of the other. The idea that, unfortunately, you're dependent on how other people act. It's going to impact you, inevitably. I mean, come on, look at the pandemic people don't wear masks and that causes other people to die it's just you know this ripple wave of action and inaction and you were just a single floating leaf in the ocean being hit by these waves um that's all i really see in the kids but in mia i see or in grace i see a lot of layers and um i think the cult layer to her is really important i after watching this film the cult the fictional cult depicted in it had a lot of visuals and iconography lifted from the Heaven's Gate cult, which I believe it was in 1996. They had a pretty famous mass suicide where they were all wearing like sweatsuits and new shoes and things like that. But they did have the uh, purple diamond draped over all of them, which they took and put directly in this film. Um, but kind of going down a rabbit hole, researching some things and reading some things uh, to record this episode, I watched Doe's Final Exit, which is a video you can watch on YouTube. It, I, it's weird. I would say I was gonna say I wouldn't recommend it because it's creepy, but it's it's not creepy in the sense that you see dead bodies or they're really talking about um, anything super disturbing. It's creepy in the sense that. It's an hour and a half long video, mostly of just this cult leader kind of aimlessly rambling in a thought disordered manner about how they're about to transcend and exit. And you look out at the crowd and what I saw in the faces of the people in the crowd in that video were people who, man, they were just glad to be a part of something. They were, they were glad to feel like they had a sense of belonging that they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were, where they were going. They had their mind made up about something and they were doing it. And I think that that is a feeling that is growingly absent. That people have good intentions and want to fill that hole with something. But there just aren't a lot of options. I think that a lot of people are disillusioned um, by politics or religion or any number of engines in which people used to sort of exert that. Um, will but it was definitely spooky looking at those people and thinking how did they end up in that chair how did they end up in this moment looking at this guy who <laughs> I mean you can, you can easily tell it, it he's essentially saying nothing I mean it, there is no substance to what he is saying and all that is really to be read between the lines is like hey this is like the final hype speech before we all go do it before we all go kill ourselves and it's like damn people will really all commit suicide together intoxicated by the allure of man i finally have a group where we're all doing something important together because that's that that's the feeling that is that is the true genuine desire that's being exploited by these people that are like co-leaders that deep down that's a beautiful desire to have to want to cooperate to want to be a part of a group and to do something that is meaningful and matters and 
transcends materialism, transcends um, earthliness, and achieves something more sublime. And to me, when I saw all the people in the crowd, they all just looked so lonely deep down. I think in some of their eyes, I could even see that they knew this wasn't it, and they were going to do it anyway, just so they wouldn't feel so alone. And I, I think that that sort of analysis is important for this film because Grace's connection to the cult is ultimately what makes her so susceptible to manipulation, what makes her response to the manipulation so intense, and ultimately informs her violent behavior at the end, that she was predisposed and um, shown that this sort of behavior before the moment, before going to the lodge in the past. Um, so I just kind of wanted to ramble about that for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I know it hasn't been the most uh, organized episode, but I think that I kind of needed to do this for my own sanity to kind of feel like I was doing something um, <laughs> to reach out in isolation and an attempt to uh, communicate with others, <laughs> which gets me to my last point um, before I wrap this up. But I just wanted to say that I felt like watching this movie in the quarantine, it, it definitely struck a different chord because I started thinking about all of the time I have spent in isolation since March and the growth that I've had and made and also areas where I have regressed. And I really started thinking about just how important that act of intersubjectivity is, how important it is to have people pouring into your cup and for you to be pouring into other people's cup. I know that sounds a little um, cheesy or whatever, but I, I genuinely believe that that is a, a really important thing. And I think that we've all tried to find ways to maintain a form of social contact while it is limited. And I just think that that sort of is a testament to how intrinsically tied that is to the human experience, that you see these dystopian hundred-man Zoom calls and cardboard cutouts at sporting events and all sorts of bizarre things just to maintain the facade that the social cohesion is still there because we need it to feel comfortable, to feel safe. Um, I, a lot of the stuff is also there to maintain this sort of hyper-normalization guise to make sure that, you know, capitalist markets are not negatively impacted by the pandemic, but that's sort of a side rant. I wasn't trying to get too Marxist on, <laughs> on this one, but uh, I had to, like, correct myself and slide that in there. But um, ultimately, I think it is primarily just so everyone can feel that sense of normalcy because even though hell is other people, this is also cheesy. <laughs> it's, I think that heaven is realizing we are all the same person and that it's hell to view other people as other people. But once you can step 
past that and understand that, oh, you're me from another place. You're me from another life. That is when your connection to other people is less about a servitude in, like, in order to actualize yourself in realizing you can all help each other. And maybe you have to form some level of actualization in order to really embody that. But I think striving for it is important. But I don't know. I think that might be a little hippy-dippy or esoteric. Maybe I'm about to start my own cult. Who knows? Um, but I think it's all important to bear in mind. And to me, it really came to the forefront in this horror film, which ultimately is about the horror of people abusing that. Abusing that sacred bond that we share between each other, wherein my life can enrich your life and your life can enrich mine. My woes can be a gift to someone else and their struggle can be a gift to me. And I think that part of what makes The Lodge so unnerving is seeing characters look at that same exchange, that same bond that we share between each other and saying, how can I use this to fuck with somebody? How can I use this to have fun? How can I use this to feel better about the fact that I had something bad happen to me? And ultimately it just shows the evils of narcissism and egoism and just that, I don't know, all of that. But, um... That's about it, you know? I think I may have rambled a bit too much trying to act like I know what I'm talking about with, with uh, psychoanalysis. I, I hope it was understandable in the slightest. Um, but I really appreciate anybody who took the time to listen to this episode. I know it's a little bit shorter. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have anyone here to get sidetracked with. Normally... Chris and I will go off on a riff about Avatar The Last Airbender and it'll go on for 20 minutes before we get back on topic. But um, it was just me today. But I guess it was me and you, listener, because you can never escape the relationship of intersubjectivity, even when you think you have. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that out there. But yeah, uh, I guess thank you for listening to this episode of Community Garden. Um, it's been real. This was a really fun way to stay sane. Uh, depending on how long I'm quarantined, I might do one more of these. If I do, I'm not going to do a movie. I think I'm going to talk about a topic or something. Maybe cults. Maybe cults. I'm kind of digging cults right now. I've also been watching um, The Vow, the Nexium uh, documentary on HBO. And it's got the juices flowing. I've been thinking about cults a lot. So this in the lodge, it kind of, it got me. But um, yeah, that's about it. So yeah, yeah. my name's Nate. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Nathaniel Wint. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening. Oh.